This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. Welcome to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9. My name's Martine and I'm an alcoholic. The purpose of this show is to increase public awareness of Alcoholics Anonymous as an effective means of recovery from the disease of alcoholism. Our show has two parts. First, we talk a bit about alcoholism, what it is and what AA can do to help. And then we'll interview a recovering alcoholic who's an active member of AA. I'm now going to ask our guest to read the AA preamble, which is read at the start of every AA meeting. Kia everyone, my name is Martin, I'm an alcoholic. Uh, the AA preamble, Alcoholics Anonymous, is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength and hope with each other, that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership, we are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organisation or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So what is alcoholism? Alcoholism is a disease, not a disgrace. There's no shame in having an illness or a disease. An unusual feature of this disease is that it will do whatever it can to convince you that you do not have it. However, once it has a hold of you, the progression of symptoms is like the classic disease model and the victim is as helpless as a sufferer of cancer. If you're an alcoholic, you're at the beginning of a long road that usually ends in one of three places, prisons, institutions or death. If you think this sounds dramatic, we can assure you that our collective experience has shown this to be true. The challenge is to convince the alcoholic to admit that they need help and become willing to seek it. Denial is a major symptom of alcoholism and the alcoholic is often the last one to recognise it and admit that they have it. Our definition of alcoholism is that it's an allergy of the body coupled with an obsession of the mind. The allergy is the physical aspect of the disease. After having the first drink, the phenomenon of craving develops and we lose control over when we will stop drinking. The old saying is, one is too many and a thousand is never enough. And yet because of the obsession of the mind, the mental aspect of the disease, the alcoholic is compelled to keep picking up the first drink. This makes us powerless. We often hear from sober alcoholics that many doubted whether life could be fun without alcohol. Fortunately, those same people report that their lives have improved dramatically since they became sober. The 12-step program of recovery, which is discussed at meetings and which is outlined in the Alcoholics Anonymous Big Book, is how we get sober and maintain our sobriety one day at a time. This program has a proven track record of helping otherwise hopeless alcoholics to achieve long-term sobriety and recovery. It has taught us how to enjoy life sober. Okay, for anyone who's just joined us, you're listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show here on Plains FM 96.9, and we're just about to interview an AA member who is going to share their experience with alcoholism. So let's meet our guest. I wonder if you'd like to um, introduce yourself and give us a quick sketch of who you are, maybe with your, starting with your age, how long you've been sober and your occupation. Cool. My name's Matt. I'm an alcoholic. Um Age will be, I've just turned 50, I got sober at 32, 
Uh, so I'm 17 years sober. Sober day, sobriety date is the 18th of September 2006. And, and um, what do you do for a job? I work for myself from home. Cool. And I wonder if you could give us a bit of a background, what your childhood was like growing up. Um, yep. So childhood was, you know, it was fairly normal, really. Uh, Mum, dad. Uh, I was the oldest of three, brother and sister. Um, everything was pretty. Everything was pretty normal. We moved around a bit, you know. Um, you know, my dad was always he had a bit of an entrepreneur's mindset, and he couldn't settle anywhere, and and he always wanted to be his own boss. And uh, so we moved around a lot while he was looking for the right solutions. And you know, things would happen. He would pick up, and we'd do large geographicals. So we never really found anywhere to settle as kids. Uh, never really quite fit in. Was bullied a lot at school. Right. Always being the new kid. Yeah. And, uh, but, but generally it was okay. You know, my dad became my best mate and, uh, we'd moved to where we, we were living in a, a post office, um, in a place in Northeast England. And we went to look at this place and I hated it. I never wanted it to go. And, uh, the, but my dad wanted this post office and we went there and unfortunately it ended up, it ended up killing him. He took his life after three and a half years. Wow. And, uh, so all of a sudden my world turned upside down I'd lost my safety blanket I'd lost my you know and and, and I was left feeling terrified you know I was, I was frightened of the world I was scared of I didn't trust God you know I blamed God you know I used to go to I used to go to bed and I was always taught that you know we were brought up in the Anglican church and I was always taught that you have to go to bed and you have to say your prayers and if you don't say your prayers you're going to be in trouble and I, of course at that point I thought well if you don't say your prayers you're going to die you know and I thought because <laughs> then God decides that your time's up and that's it away you go um, so that was, that was pretty much, the, you know, that, that left me alone. It left me afraid. It left me feeling empty on the inside. And, uh, and I just, I didn't trust the world. I didn't know what to do. And, um, and that's when I found alcohol. You know? How old were you when that happened? Uh, what, my dad's death? Yeah. 11. Wow. 11. So it was, yeah. I had my first drink at 13. And then by 16, I started to drink regularly. Can you tell us about that first drink, how it felt, what it was like? Uh, the first drink was actually Christmas Eve and um, and it was only it was only one beer and I had one beer at 13 and I spent Christmas Day with the worst hangover I've ever had in my life. Right. In hindsight, I look back at it and I say, there's my, there's my physical allergy. That was my mental, you know, I have an abnormal reaction to alcohol. Yeah. You know, when I look back in time, um, I can see that the first time I drank alcohol, I had a physical violent uh, reaction to it. That spent the next day with my head down the toilet on Christmas Day. It was horrible. It was it was it was it was, it was a nightmare. Yeah. And it was another three years before I had another drink. And and can you tell us then from that three year point how it progressed and what it was like and how it made you feel? Yeah. So by the time I got back, it was like I was just coming out my shell. I'd spent the early part of my teenage years at home alone. Uh, I didn't make any friends because I didn't trust the world. I was frightened. And uh, and by the time I was sixteen, we started started to um, get get together with the lads. We used to play football. Uh, where I come from, it's a round ball. We use our feet. That's why we call it football. Right. You know? um, so we go down oh, the end I'm of the street. I'm assuming that's a dick. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sporty, so I don't get it. <laughs> we um, we we used to play at the end of the street, and um, the, there was a there was a pub just over the road, and we were sixteen and. You know, one day we'd go down the road, we'd play football for four or five hours, we'd go over the road, we'd have a pint. The landlord served us and he's like, you know, I don't mind you being here. He's like, as long as you're quiet, you keep your heads down. He said, if I get any complaints, I'm going to ask you to leave. He's like, if you leave quietly, you can come back next day and everything will be all right. Yeah. Well, we did. We, we loved that, you know. So we'd go down the road, play football for four hours, pop over the road and have a pint. And then it was like, oh, we'll go down the road and play football for three hours, go over the road and have two pints. 
you know, play football. For, pretty soon it was, what's the point in playing football? Let's just go to the pub. Yeah. You know, so about, by 17, because alcohol was a solution. It was a yeah. solution to a problem that I didn't know I had, you know, and uh, because what it did for me was it took away that feeling, that emptiness on the inside, that hole in my soul where I didn't quite fit and I didn't belong. All of a sudden, as soon as I have that first drink, then everything's okay. So of course more must be better. And I, I didn't realize it was a phenomenal craving at the time. Yeah. I just realized I want more of this stuff, you know, because, because it was just about, it was all about how I feel. You yeah. Know? And that's the, and that's what it did for me. So it became a solution. By the time I was 19, I drank black coffee and I was at college and in the college coffee machine, they didn't do black coffee. They had this horrible powdered milk and I hated it. And um, so I used to take a flask of water and a jar of coffee and I would mix my own coffee up in there. I had a job at the time in a local news agency. I used to work an hour and a half a night and there was a little miniature bottle of Bell's whiskey and it would sit on the shelf and I had to walk past it and it was eye level as I walked past and I used to have to walk past this point every night. So obviously it had been put there for me. <laughs> so I used to take this bottle of whiskey on the way home and it was my little treat for doing a good job, you know, and it was, um, and it would go home with me and the next morning it would go into college with me and I would sit and I would put that coffee, I would put the iron, I would have Irish coffee at nine o'clock in the morning. Right. And the students would come in and they said, Matty, that's how you become alcoholic. And I'm like, I'll be all right. I haven't got a problem. No, no worries. I can stop any time I want. Yeah. You know, the teachers never said anything to me, but the kids always pointed it out to me. But I always convinced myself that I didn't have a problem because I could always stop. So when did you realise that it was a problem and that you couldn't stop? Um, alcohol, not until I was 32, not until I got to New Zealand, you know, um, because what happened for me was every time I stopped drinking, I would replace it with something else and I would convince myself that I was okay right. because I didn't drink anymore, but I'm going to smoke weed. And right. say, oh, well, but weed's bad. Yeah, but I do weed, but I don't do speed. Right. And then say, oh, but you're smoking too much. Oh, well, I'll do speed, but I'm not going to do acid. Right. And then I used to, and I, and so drugs, drugs were a big part of my story. And um, because it was a replacement for me, you yeah. know, because, because the thing is, is what it was for me is I was looking for an external stimuli to fix an internal problem. Yeah. And I didn't know this was a problem. You know, all I know is I just, I just couldn't handle life on life's terms. My primary purpose every day was to get smashed. I didn't care how I did that. You know, and that was where it took me. So what about your rock bottom before, you know, it must have been around, must have been hitting sometime around 32. What was life like then? Well, what happened for me was I came, to, I'd come to New Zealand. I was stuck in in, in the UK and uh, I was, there was no opportunities. Everything was, was messy. My family had been moving out of here for 40 years. And, uh, and I was talking to my sister one day. I said, I'm stuck in a rut and I don't know what to do. You know, I was trying so hard, you know, but I, but I couldn't get out of this, this whole stench that I was in. It was just horrible. It was an awful existence. And uh, Sarah said, why don't you come here? She said, mum will buy you a ticket. And um, so I basically, I landed two weeks after that, uh, ran away from the UK. I was used to doing geographicals anyway. And I came to New Zealand and my brother-in-law had been given a week's notice I was coming. And, uh, and he came in on day two. He didn't talk to me for the first 24 hours because he knew nothing about me. On day two, he came in with a crate of bourbon, the ready-to-drink cans, and he said, we need to talk, let's have a drink. And we went into the garden. I said, Remco, one day I've got to stop drinking. And he said, you're going to be all right, son. It's on the other side of the world. Things are different here. And um, that night we had two cans. I got up the next day and the crate was still in the fridge. You know, And I thought, maybe he's right. You know, maybe he's right. Maybe things are different here. And that was December the 5th, 2005. And by February, 
I was staggering across the back garden. It was 4.30 in the morning. I slammed every door as I crept to bed. Met the girl out the back. We'd had a couple of bottles of Bacardi, you know, and, and everything. And what happened the next morning, I'm sat with my head in my hands on the kitchen island. And Remco came in and he said, Matty, one day you've got to stop drinking. You know, and what I realised within that moment was I'd created the same life here. It'd taken me two months to create yeah. the same life here as what I had back in the UK. And this time, I'm, you know, I'm, where I found myself was back where I was when I was 19. It reminded me of those kids in college saying, that's how you become alcoholic. Yeah. You know, and that was, and that was where I was. I realised I'd, realised I'd gone full circle. And at that point, I decided that I wanted to stop drinking. But I didn't want to go back the old way and replace it with something else. Yeah. So can you tell us about your first AA meeting and what it was like? My first AA meeting was actually in the middle of a heroin addiction. And um, I, was in, I was in the UK and um, somebody that I worked with had said, Matty, you need to come to this meeting with me. He says, you're an alcoholic. I'm like, Dave, you're an idiot. I said, I don't even drink right now. Yeah. And he goes, come to the meeting. He said, listen to the similarities and not the differences. And I went along to that meeting. I saw a God on the wall and I didn't want to have a bargee of it. Yeah. I didn't want anything to do with it. And I heard all the differences and I gave Dave every reason why I didn't need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. Yeah. And that kept me suffering for another seven and a half years. So if we fast forward seven and a half years when I get to New Zealand, now I don't want to start, I want to stop drinking, but I don't want to replace it with anything else because I know where that path takes me to. Yeah. So I know I've got to go somewhere else. And I'm sat reading the newspaper that I wouldn't normally read, uh, Kitchen Island again. It was many revelations at that Kitchen Island. <laughs> you know, it was, um, and I'm sat reading this paper and there was an, an advert in there, Alcoholics Anonymous and a phone number. And I, and I knew what I had to do. Something happened in that moment. There was this shift and I knew what I had to do. And I went back and I, I got on the phone, found out where the meeting was. It was in Lloyd Ellsmore Park in, in Packeranga in, in Auckland. And I went to this meeting and um, I walked in. God was on the wall. I was absolutely devastated. I thought he might have left by a while. <laughs> yeah. while I was out, you know, he might have got busy and gone somewhere else, but I was still there. Um, but what happened this time was I started to hear all the similarities. Yeah. You know, I started to hear these people that were talking about problems that I was having. They would fix them without drinking and they were happy. I was fixing them with drink and I was miserable. Yeah. You know, and it was kind of like, that was, that was my introduction. You know, I'm, it's all about how I feel. You know, I like that saying, you know, it says you forget what people say, you'll forget what they do, but what you won't forget is the way they make you feel. And that's what happened to me in my early recovery. I would go to these meetings and every meeting that I went to, I felt better when I left than what I did when I got there. Yeah. And for me, that was enough to keep me going back. That's what, that's what attracted me to Alcoholics Anonymous because when I started to hear those similarities, I found all the reasons why the program could work for me and why it was worth, why it was worth exploring a bit further. Yeah. Mm. So what, how would you explain to someone listening how you managed to stay sober today? What, what, what are some of the things that you do? Today, it's, well, it's a very natural life for me today. You know, it was kind of like, I, when I came in, because I didn't want this to be a spiritual solution, I tried to figure it all out for myself. You know, I wanted to work the steps off the wall. You know, in Alcoholics Anonymous, we put all of the, we put all the steps on the wall, all the traditions on the wall, everything, the program, we put it on the wall. It's there, have it, you know, have at it. So I did, I tried to work it out. And somebody said to me, Matty, if you work the program off the wall, you're going to get an off the wall program. So I went stark raving bonkers. You know, right. for six months, I tried to do this gig by myself. I tried to figure it out. And it wasn't until I got desperate enough, you know, it was like I got to this place six months in and what happened for me is my anaesthetic had worn off. 
You know, I had all of that stuff that I used to use, drinking drugs, that, my, that was my solution. My solution stopped working and there was no residue left a bit of my system. So I yeah. got all this crazy mentalness going on. And I didn't want to be sober, but I didn't want to drink and I didn't want to live, but I was too scared to die. And I was kind of like, I was in this place and I just wanted to get off the planet. And um, I, I, got myself to a, I got myself to a young people's convention and I went up to a man and I said, I'm ready for step four. I want you to take me through the steps. And this guy goes, I'll tell you what you're ready for, son. <laughs> he said, we start at the front of the big book, we read a page each, and when we get to a step, we work it. You know? And I was desperate enough to listen to him in this time. And so we set sail on this journey, first 164 pages of Alex Anonymous. And what I learned is, yeah, we put the steps on the wall, but the instructions are in the book. Yeah. You know, and, the, and for me, what I found in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous when I was guided with a sponsor was I found a set of questions, statements, prayers, promises, and instructions. And, you know, and the big book authors talk about problems that they were having in their lives and they talk about a solution to that problem. And then they tell me how to apply that solution to that problem in my life and solve it. You know, and that we went on to this journey. So going on this journey... Um, it was amazing. You know, it tells me in the book there, you know, that its main purpose is to enable me to find a connection with a power greater than myself that will solve my problem. You know, I didn't even know I had this problem, you know, mm. um, but my first sponsor taught me, you know, he said, you've got one problem and one solution. He said, your problem is a spiritual malady. Your solution is a spiritual connection. And that's what happens. You know, I started to work these, I worked this program and on a, going through the process, I started to fill myself up from the inside out. So that emptiness that I felt on the inside disappeared. You know, and what I found in Alcoholics Anonymous was I found everything that I was looking for in a drink and a drug. It's just I didn't know this was what I was looking for. You know, because I'd always, it's always been about the way that I feel. I always wanted respect. I wanted people to listen when I spoke and I did all of this stuff. I would never be sat here if I was drinking, you know, because you wouldn't even care what I had to say because I was just some nut job that was down the local boozer shouting his mouth off at the bar. And it was, you know, whereas today people listen to me when I talk. You know, I get, that, I get everything that I was looking for and more in this program. So to work this program today, you know, I've tried to fight it. I've tried to do my own way and I've, you know, I've given God part of my, given part of God part of my life and I've tried to, well, I'm going to manage this bit, you know, and what I tend to find today and, and, and I'm learning this through another, through another 12 step program as well, um, is that, you know, it's, I, I've got to fully give it all over, you know, it's like, I'm not in charge. If I run this show, then it doesn't, it, it doesn't, life doesn't go the way that I want it to, you know, I, I don't get the things that I want, you know, because my thinking limits me so much. I don't know what's possible, you know. And I remember, you know, my brother was the only one that didn't come to New Zealand. He went to, he went to America and we hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him for 21 years, you know, and it was a long time. And he dropped me off in Leeds in 2003. And he, he, he went to America and I was starting my next journey in Leeds. And Leeds was a pretty much rock bottom in itself. But when I got to here, you know, what I didn't realise, you know, is that the, um, I always told myself I hadn't seen Rob because I couldn't afford it. He lived in the other side of the world. There was all this stuff going on. And, you know, through, through Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, I don't do service to get paid, but I did some service, you know. And by doing this service, one of the offshots of that was there was a uh, technology workshop. You know, we rebuilt the website for uh, online intergroup and there was a technology workshop in America. And uh, needed a representative. And just because the, the representative lived in New Zealand shouldn't matter. You know? So they did an all-expenses-paid trip to this uh, convention that was going on in uh, Virginia, uh, Winchester, Virginia. And, um, and I said to them, look, I said, I can't go to America and not see my brother. And they're like, well, how long it takes you to get home is none of our business. 
you know, and then it's kind of mm. like, so I went, I did this convention, got to speak at the convention. We shared some ideas around the technology that we were working on in recovery. And then I jumped on a plane and on the way home, instead of flying out via Houston, I flew out via San Francisco and met my brother, saw him for the first time in 21 years, met his family. And, um, and it was the most amazing gift. And that's a gift of recovery. That process happened within 120 days, you know, from not knowing that it was going to happen to it all being over and done with. 120 days. I didn't have any idea, you know, if I'd thought of what my head could comprehend, it maybe would have got me, um, I maybe would have created an online event because it was a hybrid event that was going on. Yeah. I maybe would have got an online ticket, you know, but God had better plans for me, you know. That's what happens when I give it away. I get so much more than what I ever imagined possible. Excellent. Um AA has been described as a spiritual program. What does spirituality mean to you? It means something very different to me today to what it ever used to. It's, um, probably spirituality for me has been filled up from the inside out. You know, it's, it's not religion. It's not organised religion. And I, I looked, for, I looked for, um, for answers in the external world my whole life. I did personal, personal development. I did all of this all of this extracurricular stuff, you know, and none of that worked for me. The thing that worked for me was filling up from the inside out. And for me, spirituality is about a connection with a universe. It's about a creation, you know, and for me, higher power is within. And it's true that, you know, I, for the first thing I had to do was I had to disconnect from the mentalness that was going on in my head and I had to connect with my heart, you know, and spirituality for me comes from my heart up. You know, and that's where they, but it's all about creation. It's connection with the universe. It's energy. It's, you know, it's just, yeah, disconnection from thoughts and connection with feelings, really, you know. I'm still all about the feelings, I suppose. And, and lastly, if there are any um, listeners sitting at home and they're wondering if they have an alcohol problem or not, what's a question that you think they could ask themselves that would help? Uh, so, yeah, that's, that, that, that's a tough question, really. And... You know, for, for me, if somebody's if somebody's unsure, then they probably haven't been through enough yet. You know, I had to get to the point where the fear of staying the same was greater than the fear of changing, you know, because the the idea of going without a drink was terrifying for me. I couldn't mm. comprehend that. I couldn't comprehend the life without alcohol, mm. you know, or, or using of some kind, like I say, whether it's, it doesn't matter what the substance is, you know, but, but ultimately if I was putting something from the external world, trying to fill my internal void, that terrified me if I didn't have that coping mechanism, you know. So it's kind of like, have you had enough is, is probably what it is, you know. And, it, and, and, and by having enough, unfortunately, this decision can't be made by the conscious mind. It's got to be made by the unconscious mind. And it's that point where it's like, you know, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, yeah. when I got to that, when I realised I'm on the other side of the world, I'd lived, I, was living, I was living the life of my dreams, you know, it was like when I was in the UK, I used to dream about white sand, blue seas and palm trees, you know, and I thought that was my solution and I was so miserable and, I, and that's all I could dream about. And then I've been over in New Zealand for three months and I'm walking on Mount Monganui Beach and there's my white sand, blue seas and palm trees. This is supposed to be the thing that's just the most amazing gift for me. And I was still miserable yeah. because I was drinking and I couldn't appreciate it, you know, and, and I hadn't been through what I had to go through. And that's what I have to do, you know. I have so the question: Have I been through what I have to go through in order to be able to do something different? 
because when the unconscious mind makes that decision, then that's when I can start to hear the similarities. Can I go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous and listen to the, the reasons why I'm the same as and not make myself different? Matt, thanks so much for coming on to the show and sharing your story with us. No worries. Thank you for having me. For our listeners, if you've related to anything you've heard or would like some additional information about Alcoholics Anonymous, you can look us up at the web at www.aa.org.nz or call us on 0800 AA Works. There are over 60 meetings a week in Canterbury, so it's likely there's one near you. Join us next week to hear more from AA members sharing their experiences. Our show is every Monday at 5.30 on Plains FM and repeats on Wednesday at 12.30pm. You can also find podcasts of our past show on the Plains FM website at plainsfm.org.nz or you can download, subscribe and listen to podcasts on iTunes and Spotify. That brings us to the end of the show. Thanks for listening and remember, if you want to drink, that's your business, but if you want to stop, we can help and you don't have to do it alone. We will now close the show with a serenity prayer as we do in every AA meeting. God, God grant, grant me, me the, the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, change, the courage to change the things I can and, and the wisdom to know the difference. difference. You've been listening to the Alcoholics Anonymous radio show on Plains FM 96.9.